Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Friday, October 14th, 2022. And the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, the EU warns Russia that the West will annihilate the Russian army if Moscow uses nuclear weapons. So this uh, threat came from Joseph Burrell. He is the EU's foreign policy chief. Um, he really serves as the European Union's, you know, foreign minister. Uh, but yeah, he said that Western powers would annihilate the Russian army if Moscow uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine. So he said this at a European Diplomatic Academy event in Bruges, Belgium. He said, quote, Putin is saying he is not bluffing. Well, he cannot afford bluffing, and it has to be clear that the people supporting Ukraine and the European Union and the member states and the United States and NATO are not bluffing either. Any nuclear attack against Ukraine will create an answer, not a nuclear answer, but such a powerful answer from the military side that the Russian army will be annihilated, end quote. So there he's saying not a nuclear answer, but they would annihilate i mean annihilation means you know pretty much the total destruction this is how i take that word of the russian army so i don't know how the the u.s and nato could expect to do that without nuclear strikes but this seems to be kind of the biggest threat that i've seen from a western official on what they might do in response to russia using a nuclear weapon inside ukraine and it's weird that it comes from the head of the the EU, uh, the EU's foreign policy chief, because, you know, the EU doesn't have uh, a military, although 21 of its members are in NATO. So most, you know, the vast majority of EU members are in NATO. So, but still, it's just a strange thing to come from Burrell. Um, and this warning came as uh, NATO defense ministers were holding talks for the second day in Brussels. And those talks included a closed-door meeting of uh, NATO's nuclear planning group, and that's the body that sets and reviews NATO's nuclear policies. So Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, he also warned on Thursday against using, uh, he warned Russia against using nuclear weapons, saying that it would have severe consequences. But he said the chances of NATO using a nuclear weapon are extremely remote. When announcing, uh, so I just kind of go over what they're talking about here, you know, the Russian nuclear rhetoric. Um, it, uh, last month when Putin ordered the partial mobilization, when he called up 300,000 fresh troops, he said in his speech that Russia could use all of the weapons at its disposal to defend its territorial integrity. And Russian officials have insisted that Putin's comments were nothing new because they fall within Russia's military doctrine, which says nuclear weapons could be used if the country faces an existential threat. Uh, but Putin, the warning was significant uh, because Russia has now extended its territory by annexing areas in Ukraine under its control. And other Russian officials have explicitly said that they could defend these new territories with nuclear weapons. Um, so you know, these warnings and threats, whatever you want to call them, they're definitely significant. And um, now, you know, they're considering all the Ukrainian counteroffensives uh, attacks on Russian territory. Um, all right. So the next one here, 
Russian official says that Ukraine joining NATO would guarantee World War III. So a Russian Security Council official said this on Thursday uh, when commenting on Zelensky's recent attempt to join the alliance. So after Putin delivered a speech on the annexation of the Ukrainian territories on September 30th, if you remember, right after that, Zelensky came out and said that he submitted a fast-track application to join NATO, which was quickly shot down. Uh, So this is Alexander Venediktov. He is the Deputy Secretary of Russia's Security Council. He said that Zelensky's application was a propaganda move. Uh, He said, quote, Kiev is well aware that such a step would mean a guaranteed escalation to World War III. End quote. Uh, He also said that the U.S. and its allies would also recognize, uh, saying that they also recognize that Ukraine cannot join NATO without sparking a world war. He said, quote, the suicidal nature of such a step is understood by NATO members themselves, end quote. So during the lead up to Russia's February 24th invasion, uh, Putin was seeking guarantees from the U.S. that Ukraine would not ever join NATO. That was a big part of their uh, demands of their security concerns. And even though President Biden made clear at the time that Ukraine would not be joining the alliance anytime soon in the foreseeable future, he refused to make the promise. Uh, back in back in March, this quote I think about a lot from Zelensky. So this was during an interview with CNN, and it seemed like he was talking about the period before the war. He said that he asked for a straight answer about whether or not Ukraine could become a NATO member. And he was told no, but publicly the door would remain open. So I'll read his quote from that interview. He said, quote, I requested them personally to say directly that we are going to accept you into NATO in a year or two or five. Just say it directly and clearly or just say no. And the response was very clear. You're not going to be a NATO member. But publicly, the doors will remain open, end quote. So he says, you know, he asked five years, up to five years, and they're still saying, no, you're not going to be a NATO member. But they have to keep that door open publicly. You know, why? It just goes to show, in my, this is just my opinion and how I uh, view this period. Um, you know, if Biden really wanted to stop this invasion or other NATO countries, they would have at least tried uh, giving this guarantee to Russia, right? If, if they're really saying that they can't ever join, they would have tried. And it just seems like they, they didn't actually really want to stop this, this war from happening. Um, and while NATO has no plans to accept Ukraine as a full member, Politico reported on Wednesday, and this is what I went over yesterday, that the alliance has a 10-year plan to rebuild the country's military and arms industry. And the idea would be to shift Ukraine's military equipment from Soviet stuff to NATO weapons. And, and ha- as Politico described it, it would make them a, def- a NATO member by default, even if they're not a full member. So while they're not going to put it on paper that Ukraine is a NATO member, you know, they're doing everything, you know, more so for the, than other countries that are in NATO. Um, the assistance that they're planning to give Ukraine goes beyond what they've given to countries in Eastern Europe, former Soviet states. Um, So, you know, it's just not a good sign. All right. So next here, the Kremlin says that its goals in Ukraine can be achieved through talks. 
So the Kremlin said this um, in comments that were published in a Russian newspaper on Thursday. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, quote, the direction has not changed. The special military operation continues. It continues in order for us to achieve our goals. However, we have repeatedly reiterated that we remain open to negotiations to achieve our objectives, end quote. So these were the latest comments from Russian officials saying that they were open to negotiations. They've been saying that a lot. Um, at the same time, you know, Ukraine has hardened their stance on peace talks with Russia after Moscow formally annexed the territory that it controls in Ukraine. And after that, Putin basically said that those territories are not up for discussion. The way he put it, he said the will of the people in those territories is not up for discussion. Um, and Zelensky signed a decree uh, saying ruling out peace talks with Putin, ruling out peace talks with the Russian government as long as Putin is president. Um, so that's the view from Ukraine. But I think it is kind of notable because uh, all week it seems like I've been seeing comments from Russian officials saying that they're open to talks uh, with the West as well. Um, but the U.S. has made clear that it has no interest in negotiating with Russia over Ukraine. And we've also seen that this week as well, uh, which Peskov recognized. He said, quote, it takes two sides to have a dialogue as the West is now taking a very, very hostile stance towards us. It's unlikely that there will be any such prospect in the near future, end quote. So Biden said this week that he has no intention to meet with Putin and negotiate over Ukraine. And the Washington Post reported that U.S. officials have ruled out the idea of pushing Ukraine to talk with Russia. Um, so Putin met with Erdogan, the Turkish president, on Thursday. And um, there was all these reports saying that they were probably going to discuss this uh, Turkish proposal for peace talks. But that didn't happen, according to the Kremlin. Um, so... Apparently, they didn't even discuss Ukraine, according to the Russian side uh, account of the meeting. So that didn't go anywhere. Um, but also on Thursday, uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, he said that Russia had not received serious proposals from anyone in the West for negotiations. Um, he said they're not going to run after them, basically saying if they're not offering that they're not going to uh, really try too hard to push the issue. And uh, interestingly, Lavrov said that a deal was in reach after in-person talks were held in Istanbul way back in March. Uh, but he said that Zelensky was told not to accept the agreement. Um, I'll just read the Lavrov quote here. So these are uh, talks that we that I discuss a lot because according to multiple sources, a lot of so sources, Russian, Ukrainian media, Western media, it looked like these peace talks had a chance. There, there was a chance of a deal here. And this is something Lavrov also said. He said, quote, at the end of March, a result was achieved in Istanbul based on the Ukrainian side's proposals, which we accepted. Then apparently Kiev was told, it's too early for you to decide, end quote. So he he's saying Ukraine was told and he likely is referring to the West, the U.S., NATO, and... Um, this Ukrainian newspaper, Ukrainska Pravda, they reported that when Boris Johnson went to Kiev back in April, 
He told Zelensky not to negotiate with Russia and that even if Ukraine was ready to sign a deal, the West was not. And according to these Ukrainian sources speaking to this newspaper, that played a that was a major factor in the reason why there wasn't a Zelensky-Putin meeting. That was something that was in the works. Um, and then Boris Johnson himself, uh, about a month later, in a phone call with Macron, the French president, uh, according to the British prime minister's office, so this is from the British themselves, Johnson told Macron that he gave him an update on his visit to Ukraine, and he said that he urged against negotiations with Russia. Um, and there's just a lot of signs that the U.S. and NATO wanted didn't want those peace talks to be successful. And then right after those peace talks hit a dead end was when Lloyd Austin said, we're going to weaken Russia, and then they signed off on that $40 billion aid package. Um, all right. So now I got to take a moment to mention that, again, that it's our fundraiser. We could really use some help here. I know times are tough for everybody, um, but uh, this is how we get by is just reader donations. Um, and we have all these great endorsements for this fundraiser. We have a great letter from John Mearsheimer at the top of the page, who is just one of the most important voices in all this madness right now. Um, and we've had Douglas McGregor uh, endorse us for this fundraiser, Noam Chomsky, who wrote a very long, detailed letter about why he likes antiwar.com. So, I mean, if, I think uh, if and uh, Kelly Vlahos as well, who runs Responsible Statecraft, our friends over there. And I think, you know, just the fact that we have all these great people endorsing us says a lot. And, uh, you know, it's important that we keep running um so please you can go to antiwar.com slash donate and look at different ways to donate if you have any questions there's a phone number there you could call to speak with angela keaton and uh, you could always contact me if you ever want to discuss anything about the site about this show but we're entirely reader funded and uh, we need you guys to get by so please antiwar.com slash donate all right back to the great wonderful news here um, so I left up, we left up the story from yesterday, that 10 year NATO plan to rebuild Ukraine's military, just because I haven't really seen that in many other places. And I think it's very, uh, it's very important. All right. So the next one, the state department says that the Iran deal is not our focus right now. Um, so this was on Wednesday night during, uh, one of the state department press conferences, Ned Price, the spokesman for the state department said that the Iran that reviving restoring the Iran nuclear deal known as the JCPOA which would involve lifting sanctions on Iran getting Iranian oil back on the global market uh, but he said that is not our focus now and of course he blamed the Iranians for the impasse but the Biden administration they've been increasing sanctions on Iran over the past few weeks as they have throughout all these negotiations and that just signals to me and I'm definitely to Iran that the U.S. is not serious about giving Iran sanctions relief. Uh, Price said, quote, a deal certainly does not appear imminent. Nothing we've heard in recent weeks suggests they've changed their position, end quote. So Price said that Washington's main focus right now concerning Iran is the protests that have been going on inside the country that were sparked by the death of a Kurdish Iranian woman who was in police custody. So the U.S. has sanctioned Iran over these protests, and they are also trying to, seems like, provide material support to the demonstrators. The U.S., they adjusted some sanctions in September to give 
uh, help give these Iranians more internet access. And SpaceX CEO Elon Musk, he said that he was activating the Starlink satellite internet service inside Iran. But to access the internet using Starlink, the user would need a terminal. And since the Iranian government is not going to want people using these terminals, that means that they might have to smuggle them in. And at this point, it's not clear if the U.S. is trying to smuggle them in. I haven't seen uh, that that's been happening. But something I found while I was writing this was an interview with William Burns, the CIA director. And he was asked if the U.S. would help get these terminals inside Iran. And this is what he said. He said, quote, well, the U.S. has made very clear our support for the free flow of information and freedom of the Internet. So without going into deep into any details, I think the United States is very committed to that. End quote. So, you know, he's not saying no. <laughs> and then he was asked kind of point blank if the U.S. was getting involved in the protests in Iran. And he said, quote, all I can say is we are going to continue to be strongly supportive as a government in the free flow of information, end quote. Um, so it does, based on this head of the CIA's comments, it sounds like they are trying to either get these terminals in or trying to help the protesters in, in other ways. And you saw uh, just today, I think it was Raisi, the president, you know, he came out and he's blaming the protests on, on the U.S., um, saying that the U.S. is trying to destabilize Iran. And um, we do know, you know, they've also blamed Israel. And we do know that Israel does have a covert. They carry out a lot of covert operations inside Iran. And nothing I've seen, I, but I haven't followed the, these protests really closely enough to say. I haven't seen anything where I could say definitively that the U.S. and Iran are helping drive these protests. I'm sure that they're organic. But... Um, it does sound like, you know, the U.S. is going to try to uh, take advantage, of course. And, you know, it's it, it's very sensitive for Iran, of course, because the CIA overthrew the uh, government in 1953, which, you know, installed the Shah, which led to the Islamic Revolution and is why we have the, the government that is there today is there. Um, it was a response to that. Um, so, yeah, but something to keep an eye on. And the next one here, let's see what we got. Uh, the Saudis reject U.S. condemnation of the OPEC oil cuts. So Saudi Arabia on Thursday, they shot back at the Biden administration for its criticism of OPEC's decision to, redu to reduce oil production and said that it totally rejected the U.S. characterization of the move. So Biden officials have said that Saudi Arabia and other OPEC nations have aligned with Russia by agreeing to cut oil produ production by 2 million barrels per day. But the Saudis reject that notion and say the move was not political. Uh, the Saudi foreign ministry said in a statement, quote, these outcomes are based purely on economic considerations that take into account maintaining balance of supply and demand in the oil markets, as well as aim to limit uh, volatility that does not serve the interest of consumers and producers, as has always been the case within OPEC plus, end quote. So the statement said that in consultations on the issue, the Biden administration suggested postponing the reduction in oil production by one month. And if they did that, it could have delayed the rise in gas prices until after the U.S. midterm elections. Um, so it does 
so the Saudis are basically saying that the U.S., you know, the, the Biden administration, wanted to tried to get them not to do this until after midterms, um, which I haven't. You know, the Saudis aren't the most reliable uh, source, but I didn't see any explicit denial of that uh, claim from the Biden administration. But they did kind of reject. They they responded to what the Saudis said. Um, but the White House, they responded again by accusing the Saudis of helping Russia and warning that the U.S. will reassess its relationship with the kingdom. Uh, John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, he said, quote, we are reevaluating our relationship with Saudi Arabia in light of these actions and will continue to look for signs about where they stand in combating Russian aggression, end quote. So many Democrats in Congress are calling for a fundamental change to the U.S. relationship with the Saudis after the OPEC decisions, including a halt to U.S. military support for Riyadh. And this is significant. Again, it could be all over electoral politics. But Bob Menendez, the, the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he's called for a complete freeze of U.S.-Saudi cooperation. And he's a total hawk. Uh, and he's pretty influential over U.S. foreign policy. And he said that complete freeze should include any arms sales and security cooperation. Um, so the spat with the Saudis, it comes after the ceasefire in Yemen expired. And so far, there have been no reports of Saudi airstrikes, thankfully, in the country since the truce ended. Um, and Saudis, their military operations in Yemen are, are almost entirely reliant on U.S. support. And there's currently a war powers resolution in both the House and the Senate to end U.S. support for the war. So this seems like a good opportunity to really jump on that. So you could call 1-833-STOP-WAR to tell your representative and senator to support this legislation. Hopefully they get a vote soon. I mean, I don't understand what they're waiting on. Um, it has over 100 co-sponsors, bipartisan. Uh, you go to 1-833-STOP-WAR.COM. Um, and, and there's a good prompt there to, to, to say. Uh, it, it gives you stuff to say, like a little script. Uh, all right, the next one here. This is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. Uh, the Palestinian uh, Authority president rules out the U.S. as sole mediator, open to Russia filling the role. So this is interesting. Abbas, the head of the PA, uh, he said that the U.S. was not uh, could not play a, a good broker uh, in resolving the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and the siege of Gaza. Um, and Abbas is saying, oh, Moscow could could step in, saying that Russia stands for justice, um, which is interesting. Uh, they met in Kazakhstan on Thursday. That's where Putin also met with Erdogan. Um, and he also suggested that the situation could be resolved by the quartet, which is Ru Russia. That's a name for Russia the U.S., the United Nations, and the European Union working together. So he's saying not just the U.S., because, I mean, obviously the U.S. is not an honest broker in that relationship. Um, so, you know, maybe these four groups, these four entities could uh, could work something out better. Uh, okay, so the next one, another one from Kyle. North Korea test missiles. South Korea scrambles fighter jets. So more tensions uh, on the Korean Peninsula and North Korea, their warplanes flew near South Korea and Seoul conducted artillery drills and scrambled its fighter jets. And um, 
North Korea's state media reported that Pyongyang engaged in aerial military drills in response to artillery exercises by South Korean troops. So they're saying that North Korea is saying what they did was in a response to South Korea. Again, tit for tat escalations that are really ramping up. I mean, um, it seems like almost every day uh, we're seeing this. Uh, Okay. Last one here. This is from Jason Ditz. A Syrian military bus was bombed in Damascus, killing 18 Syrian soldiers. Uh, So a major pre-planted IED device tore through a Syrian military bus in Damascus on Thursday, killing at least 18 soldiers and wounding 27 others. Um, so this was the deadliest attack, single attack on Syrian troops uh, of the year. And so far, nobody has claimed credit. There's media speculation that it may have been ISIS, but ISIS usually takes credit pretty quickly. And, and people find that on their social media channels and stuff that they still have. Um All right, so that's it for the news for today. And uh, we have a lot of good viewpoints, as always. Again, please help us with our fundraiser. Uh, We really um, need the help to get it moving along here so we can just focus on on our work covering the news and giving you, providing you with great viewpoints and analysis of U.S. foreign policy. But that's it for me for today. That's it for me for the week. I'll be back. After the weekend, I hope everybody has a good one, uh, and I'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening.